Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 25th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you on April 6th, if you are in Florida or in South Florida, or if you wanted to fly to South Florida for a nice vacation in the middle of April or not that we're the first week of April, to join us for the second, only the second time live podcasting event where you will be able to sit in an audience and watch us podcast this podcast, record it, do it live, right in front of you in Palm Beach on April 6th. For more information, that means me, that means Noah, that means Abe, that means Christine, and maybe a special guest or two. You want to find out more and register and sign up to uh, attend, please go to commentary.org slash live podcast. That's commentary.org slash live podcast for our April 6th live podcast event in Palm Beach, Florida. Two of the people who will be at that event are with me today, as they always are. Christine Rosen is out. Uh, as she has been this week. But here is executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Looking forward to uh, getting some rays, some some South Florida rays in April. You bet. I used to like the cold, and uh, suddenly I hate it. You hate the cold, so so let let us hope. Let us hope that it will be a balmy 78 degrees in Palm Beach on April 6th. And also there in Palm Beach on April 6th, the associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, yes, you will be able to see us. You'll be able to interact with us. You'll be able to interact with other commentary uh, listeners, commentary podcast listeners, commentary magazine readers, the commentary family in South Florida. Um, so uh, the pincers uh, are squeezing uh, Kiev. Um, it appears uh, there are uh, Russian forces um, in in Kiev. There's a horrifying piece of footage of a Russian tank just uh, rolling over uh, a, a passenger car just because it could uh, on on some relatively deserted stretch of highway. Um, Last night, uh, Thursday night, President Zelensky on a call with uh, with NATO leaders um, said this may be the last video call said this may be the last time you see me alive. Um, Politicians are taking up arms. Uh, Former President Poroshenko uh, was interviewed by John Berman on CNN carrying um, carrying an automatic rifle. Um, I heard on the BBC World Service an interview with an opposition politician, a woman uh, who has three children with a, one of them, a nine month old baby, saying she's getting weaponry to stay in her house to defend, to make sure that her 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 kids aren't taken. Uh, this is uh, this is uh, very, very, very real. And um, Noah, uh, Biden spoke yesterday at 230. Uh I thought it was a bad speech. Um, the question in policy terms uh, really is uh, they seem to be holding back some sanction, uh, some sanctions in reserve to hit him, to give him a second or third or fourth hit. Um, 
And when asked why he wasn't bringing the full force of shock and awe sanctions to bear on Russia, Biden basically said, eh, talk to me in a month. We'll, 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 we'll see. We'll see how painful this is in a month, either because he knows they're going to be extraordinarily painful uh, or uh, this was a, a remarkable, what would you call it? Almost like denial of the seriousness of purpose that he was attempting to express in the course of the entire speech. Yeah, I wasn't really listening for <clears throat> the rhetorical flourishes. I was listening for policy proposals. And what I heard was not especially, frankly, compelling, uh, not compared to the first initial response, which I thought was a good first start. I don't think this is a sufficient um, start. No sanctions on Vladimir Putin personally or his uh, his family, as far as I understand it. Now, they don't have a ton of assets in their name, but they, their family does. Um, so I don't know why they're holding off there. No uh, ejecting Russia from the SWIFT international payment system, um, which I want to speak to in a minute. And uh, no sanctions directly targeting the Russian energy sector. Uh, those are the ones that uh, Moscow would really feel. They feel it immediately, and it might actually change some of their calculations in the Kremlin. We don't know whether it would or not. Sanctions have a tendency to not change a regime's behavior, but this certainly won't. Um, there's a lot of some assumption on the part of the people, early on, assumption on the part of the people that they, uh, the sanctions that the West was leveraging against Russian banks, Russian financial services, and not allowing Russia to float, for example, debt on a, a Western bond markets, et cetera. Um, amounts to several trillion dollars in assets. It's uh, basically swift sanctions, so you don't really need to go after swift sanctions. Uh, that is not true. That is uh, apparently an expression of people who don't frankly understand what swift is. And one of the reasons why we're not doing that is in part because of European objections to it, which are sound uh, insofar as I understand it. The German objection is that swift can essentially function as an import ban, which some believe would compel legally compel Berlin to draw uh, uh, Russian in gas imports to zero overnight, um, which is frankly unacceptable from Berlin's position. And I kind of understand why uh, there needs to be a weaning process. But at no point will we ever get there if this is the Russia, the German position. Um, and Biden said that very explicitly when he was asked about SWIFT, that uh, he said Europe doesn't want to do that just yet. Very impolitic, very uh, undiplomatic to put Europe on the hook like that. Nevertheless, what, do, what other choice does he have if this is the American initiative and it's being stymied by by um, the continent? What is he going to do besides acknowledge that the continent's resistance is the problem here? Um, so I sympathize with that. Uh, as far as the, the war goes right now, there's some very interesting things happening on the ground, I think. Listen, we're only, as you said, John, to on a text thread yesterday, we're really early on in this phase. It's, it's day two of this campaign, early day three, I think, actually. Um. But we've, there's a lot of things that we've seen that match perfectly with the predictions of how this campaign would go, but not all of them. Some of them are very interesting. Ukraine was supposed to be a black hole by now. Electronic warfare, uh, communications disruptions were supposed to take out all communications to the point where we wouldn't know anything that's going on there. That hasn't happened. Mobile and data rates are still operational. We see plenty of videos streaming out of this place. As you just said, John, one of these videos making the rounds is a... Uh, uh, a Russian armored personnel carrier or something along the likes that just sort of swerved and ran over this car. It's a really hideous event. I think the individual actually survived. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Nevertheless, that sort of thing is, is all over the internet and making its way into cable news, um, which is not what we were supposed to see. And I don't think Russia wants us to see it. Likewise, uh, the Ukrainian Air Force was supposed to be grounded 
within the first initial hours of intervention. That has not happened. Ukrainian command and control still exists. Ukrainian anti-air batteries still operational and Ukrainian helicopters still in combat. Um, and finally, we have not seen the full array of Russian forces committed to this fight. Many are still in reserve. We anticipate that, you know, this is sort of a push. If you find mush, you keep going. Um, they found something a little bit harder. So we anticipate that they will unleash the full might of the Russian military and um, uh, artillery barrages on harder targets within, you know, a short period of time. The Battle of Kiev has already begun, but they're not committing the full might of Russian military forces arrayed against Ukraine to this fight. And you have to wonder why. Um, and it could just be that they're, you know, testing the reserves or sending conscripts out first. Who knows? But you also can't discount the possibility that they know a negotiated settlement to this campaign is the only way it ends for them. And a, a, a total crushing of the rush of the Ukrainian military and all the horrors that would accompany it, the civilian casualties, the decimation of the urban centers um, would just make that resolution harder. So you got to wonder if well, Moscow is starting to flinch a little bit. Well, uh, or or whether this was always part of the plan. In other words, that they they've 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 uh, they've worked to scare the bejesus out of the Ukrainians. And Sergei Lavrov uh, said last night that they would be totally willing to negotiate with Ukraine, provided that Ukraine surrenders. Uh, then later, there was some evidence that Putin said that he was willing to negotiate if the Ukrainians, you know, if the Ukrainians would come to Belarus. Uh, they are still insisting uh, in the form of sort of uh, mouthpieces like uh, like the head of the uh, Institute for Security Studies in Moscow that a, a, a new Ukrainian government that isn't uh, created by the State Department isn't a puppet of Nazis uh, be installed that they can negotiate with. So essentially a Vichy type situation. Um so we don't know. I mean, this is a fog of war, a fog of war. We don't we have no idea what's really going on on the ground. Uh, no, I, I'm not sure that they know. Uh, no, yeah, I have no, I have a question. I, uh, it's not that I'm disagreeing with you. I just want to hear your thinking. Why is a negotiated settlement Russia's only way out of this? Well, I, I, I don't know whether this is you know the future, but, um, you know, all open source intelligence suggests, as John mentioned earlier, um, that an insurgency is in the offing, how effective that would be, uh, whether uh, elements of the Ukrainian government would be able to control or command that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they appear to be thinking that they would, you know, because, again, more open source intelligence, all fog of war, take it as a grain of salt. This is just what I'm privy to. But they're doing their, uh, doing their best to target from the air, uh, special forces, intelligence forces uh, from Ukraine under the assumption that they would be the commanders who would lead civilian forces. And, and the remnants of the Ukrainian army in an insurgency campaign. But everything we're seeing suggests the whole of the Ukrainian population is basically being armed, is, is you know, has a case of Molotov cocktails in their, in their apartment and are ready to rain down fire upon uh, occupying forces. This campaign doesn't end with a swift decapitation of this government. I, I think that's a very safe bet, that the violence doesn't end if they capture and kill Zelensky. I think we don't know. I mean, that's, you know, the Soviets are testing. I'm certainly willing to say uh, yeah. with with ninety nine point nine percent certainty that Zelensky killed or captured or surrenders campaign doesn't right. end then. OK, but what, what I mean is that I, I think that um, uh, we uh, might be overestimating the 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 strength or power or force of the resistance that 
the Soviets themselves could be smoking out resistance, uh, Russians, excuse me. I mean, that, that they could be smoking out, you know, you, you sort of hold back to see where they advance uh, and, you know, to see who comes out of where in order to then more precisely strike uh, forces when you think you know where they might be hiding. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that could be going on um, if this is a, a competent war plan uh, that that don't require them to have gone all in on the first day or two. I mean, that's a pessimistic reading of what's going on, but I think you have to sort of have it as one one distinct possibility that they they are holding back in order to see what kinds of strength the Ukrainians themselves are able to muster and where, literally geographically where, so that they can then target uh, those areas of, of, of strength more precisely. I don't know. I mean, we have all this the, these ideas that there are saboteur crews that have already long, penetrated Ukraine and are are in place to destroy stuff from within and to take out people from within and assassination squads and stuff like that. You never know whether that kind of talk is real or whether it is kind of conjured up out of movies and suspense novels and thrillers. Um, and, 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 and people who write war scenarios, whether that stuff actually happens or that, you know, is really uh, done. I mean, we know the Israelis do it. We know the Israelis have, have all this, this kind of, um, uh, have all sorts of, uh, interesting, uh, asymmetrical warfare approaches, uh, that generally speaking, large scale armies are much less likely to have at their disposal because they're, large-scale armies and their great strength comes from, you know, uh, being able to use overwhelming force. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I, I don't want people to get too excited uh, about the about the nature of the Ukrainian resistance, because we just don't know how strong the Soviets are. Russians, I keep saying Soviets, I'm sorry, how strong the Russians are and how and how strong the Ukrainians are are will be in response i well look i don't know what to, we yeah. don't and what we don't know but according to the american officials defense officials in the pentagon who are talking to reporters yeah the advance on kiev is going slower than anticipated right they're encountering they, more resistance but, than they thought now that's not the case in the south the advance up from uh the crimean peninsula has been progressing with rapidity that's positively terrifying but the advance from belarus the advance from um uh, southeastern russia uh, has been slow. No, let's, as I say, let's hope that's the case. It could also be that they're misreading Russian strategy. Now, granted, they seem to have uh, things well penetrated and the intelligence has been very good so far. So it might be indeed that they're picking up chatter about how things are harder than they, than they thought they were going to be. And so I'm, I'm in no position to judge whether or not their, uh, their, their view is accurate or not. Um, I want to go get back to Biden's speech because uh, the policy stuff, um, you know, it's significant. We shouldn't we shouldn't make light of the fact that uh, they are essentially freezing or seizing assets equal to the size of the entire Russian economy and these two or three banks. I mean, the Russian economy has about a trillion and a half uh, in GDP. These banks have about a trillion and a half in holdings. So, you know, you are crippling. The economy. There are weird things, though, going on in in relation to the sanctions. Things that are being held back, like 
the full force of the sanctions on the energy sector, which is, as you've said, Noah, and is the case, is the Russian economy, is the energy sector. That's why people call it, you know, a gas station with with nuclear weapons. Um, and and there appear to be all kinds of carve outs in the sanctions to make sure that the world that the that the Russian oil spigot isn't turned off. That could be what Biden means when he keeps saying he's going to do what he can to make sure that this isn't too painful for the American people. I want to remind people that the stagflation of the 1970s was due in part to a disruption in the oil market. That that was the thing that triggered the 19s, the 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 horrors, economic horrors of 1979 was the Iranian oil embargo uh, that started in January of 79. And, you know, by, by I don't know when it was, December of 79, the interest rates were, you know, well over 10%. Um, and so, you know, the stagflation, the, the inflation rate was, 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 was real and really horrible. Um, and so an oil disruption, you know, in, in historical terms uh, could be, could be terrifying and, uh, and so Biden wants to minimize that and everything else. Abe, you. But I, I, so I, I understand the arguments um, for being cautious about hitting uh, Russian energy in that way. Um, I understand the arguments for being cautious and even scared to implement uh, swift sanctions. But if you bluff, if you say I'm going to give you the mother of all sanctions and then you come out and say we're doing this, this, this and this, but we're not hitting Putin personally and there's nothing in there about the energy sector. And if you and if you had said beforehand that Swift is on the table and now you're saying uh, Europe doesn't want to do it, what table uh, was it on? Um, I think that there's a net effect uh, whereby Putin recognizes that he's called Biden's bluff a bit here, even though there are there are big sanctions at work. It's not the mother of all sanctions. And he didn't get Europe on board with Swift. And look, I'm happy to give Biden credit for when he for the degree to which he has rallied uh, our NATO and other partners uh, to to get behind certain sanctions. But if he throws up his hands and says, oh, we, I can't get them on board with Swift, you've also got to ding him for that. It's well, it's all part of the job. You know, presidential addresses have two purposes, right? One of which is to lay out uh, policy and the other of which is to create the rhetorical, ideological, theoretical frame for what it is that the president says he's doing. And I was very alarmed as I write today in the New York Post, I was very alarmed by the speech's um, uh, weird quality, which is that um, uh, Biden seems to be relying on the idea that um, that the forces of history are going to take Vladimir Putin down and that uh, history will do this, as will freedom and liberty will somehow uh, end up showing that Putin has done wrong, right? Because he said, when the history of this era is written, Putin's choice to make a totally unjustifiable war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. Liberty, democracy, human dignity, these are the forces far more powerful than fear and oppression. Now, that's just 
not true, right? I mean, it's as a as a simple matter of fact, it's not true that you know there was a lot of liberty uh, in the hearts of the Hungarians and, and the Czech in '56 and the Czechs in '68 and the Poles in 1980. And the tanks rolled in and crushed them because liberty isn't isn't uh, isn't a tank, you know. Um, when when bad men want to use um, uh, the uh, the tools of violence to suppress uh, to suppress freedom and that sort of thing, it it works. It's not that it fails. The question is how <clears throat> how are and if you cr- liberty is a wonderful thing, but liberty is a liberty is something. Freedom is something that exists in our souls because it is God given. But liberty is exercised through institutions, and Putin has shown himself over 20 years very expert in destroying the institutions that allow for the exercise of liberty within Russia, and therefore I think we'll have no compunction <laughs> destroying them outside Russia uh, in, in Ukraine because uh, he knows exactly what the value of crushing them is, and what Biden is not talking about is how we're going to shore those up. Okay, so how we're going to help them. <laughs> There's that's a very Obama esque turn of phrase that essentially gets allows him to wiggle out of the obligations that uh, the global hegemon and the chief you know democratic state on the planet has. I get it. I understand. However, a lot of the something that people who don't pay a ton of attention to this region tend to discount is the fact that the Ukrainians have gotten a vote over the course of 20 years and have consistently voted violently and to the sacrifice of their own lives in favor of integration with the West. I was having a conversation yesterday with an individual who's making the assumption, frankly, a ponderous claim, but one that's popular on the nationalist right, that you know, because we committed less than a half of a percent of our annual defense budget to Ukraine, and it has failed to stop, halt the full might of the Russian armed forces, the project was a mistake to begin with that we couldn't possibly support this state, so we shouldn't have begun to support this state to begin with. As though this was something that was just hatched up and the Pentagon committed to it, to it and the, the government and the United States government committed to it without ever consulting the geopolitical factors on the ground or the American populace. Twice in 20 years, in 2004 and in 2014, the, Russian, the Ukrainians violently threw off the Russian yoke. They get a vote. They keep dragging us into this whether we want to be dragged into it or not. So yes, the freedom and the spirit of liberty does live within the hearts of Ukrainians, and they absolutely do sacrifice to secure it, and they will do so and continue to do so, whether we like it or not. Right. No, I, 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 am in, I am in total agreement with you. What I'm saying is, if you say this is unjustifiable, it is horrible, it's monstrous, and uh, it, it's a violation of everything. Uh, freedom is not going to save you. That's that's my point. Like Biden Nor seems are... to be alighting, alighting the fact that we need to support the Ukrainians because not just because we need to stop the depredations of Putin and 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 protect it, but because uh, they're crushing a he's crushing a democratic state, however corrupt it might be, or however however problematic some of its uh, institutions might be. Uh, and that's that's out of the question here, right? Because we're not going to commit forces. Uh, we we're just saying, oh, we made a mistake because liberty and freedom will always prevail. Liberty and freedom are not going to protect you, nor will 
the eyes of the world, the quote unquote eyes of the world, which is important to bring up because this is another rhetorical flourish that Biden had relied on earlier in his dealings with Putin at that when he first uh, gifted him with symmetry. Um, he was sort of um, conveying to the press after that he's appealing to Putin's sense of uh, being on the world stage and uh, the world is watching. And does he want to make Russia look bad in the eyes of the world? Right. And this is also a very Obama um, uh a uh, 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 sort of um, uh, uh, turn of phrase that Obama would use in regard to uh, Tehran cracking down on protesters. And, and it's another one of those that has to be put in the garbage. Bin. I don't think this, I don't this, know if this, this is entirely true. I really don't. Look, the operational plan here, as I understood it, is to cut off all the communications, turn the lights off, destroy the grid, make everybody panic, get them out into the streets, clog the roads, force Ukrainian forces to be bogged down so they wouldn't be able to defend Kiev. That hasn't happened in part because I, I can't imagine that they're not afraid in the Kremlin of the images that we I would don't see. know. No, we don't but, know but, but why. Look at the images been, now. The, the, the images now are horrific. The images now are horrific. They're nothing, nothing okay. compared to what Ukrainian forces but, could bring to bear on population centers. Okay, Russian but forces. look, but look, when when push comes to shove, history shows that hard men are willing to do hard things in order to secure their aims, right? And and American presidents often default to this when they can't really intervene directly and we have time and again and this has been a was a domestic political issue for decades uh did we somehow inadvertently um encourage the hungarians to rise up in 56 with uh, an ill-considered few statements that led them to believe that we would intervene on their behalf militarily if they rose up against um, you know, rose up behind the Iron Curtain. Did we do that? Because, of course, in the end, Eisenhower wasn't going to do that. Uh, you know, uh, Johnson wasn't going to, certainly wasn't going to intervene in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and um, neither and uh, neither Carter nor Reagan was going to intervene in Poland in 1980. These were two that, and let's move even forward. We have the incredible demonstration the most moving demonstration of the desire for freedom in our lifetimes was probably Tiananmen Square. And the Chinese, when it was necessary, they, they crushed the revolt. Revolts can be crushed. Now, this is not a revolt, right? This is, a, this is an effort to take over another country. It's a whole different kind of thing. And everything I'm talking about was an internal matter that then required external uh, not not the case of uh, China, but certainly in the case of Hungary and Poland and and Czechoslovakia, you had the need for um, external forces, Russian, you know, to to crush the to crush the revolt. Um, but uh, do we really think that Putin ha hasn't made the calculations here? Now, maybe he's holding back to gauge it, but. Really, it's only 48 to 72 hours. Like the idea that we've seen him, we're used to this idea because of Colin Powell and shock and awe. We're used to the idea that the way you start a war is with overwhelming force. That hasn't, I mean, that's, that's not always the case. Not exactly. That's how you end a war. You get it done quick and painlessly, as painlessly as possible with overwhelming force. 
<clears throat> so that you don't drag out the campaign. No, right? I know. I know. But shock and awe. We're looking at a drawn out yeah. campaign to according to American forces, two thirds of, uh, of the men and material that Russia amassed on the border are still there. We would be well, in Basra because, by now. OK, right. But they may have a different. I mean, we don't we can't judge whether it's going badly or well for the Russians yet. I, we just can't. Um, and I do think, however, going back to Biden, that when uh, at the first really significant, I would say significant display of a genuinely serious press corps grilling the president after very specific things he said. It was like the first time that I felt like the Washington press corps was doing its job with Biden. I know we keep saying, well, it got better after Afghanistan stuff. But I mean, they said, why didn't you do SWIFT? What are the other sanctions that you didn't that you have in, in your back pocket? Why do you think this is going to work? If the sanctions were going to work, why haven't they worked already? If they're so painful, why isn't Putin reeling from the pain yet? Uh, and 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 Biden was forced to say, give it a month. Well, I mean, where's Ukraine going to be in a month? Like, what you know, if you're if he's saying it's going to take a month for the sanctions to work, you know, fifty thousand people could be dead in a month if if the Russians bring the full force of their power to bear and you know bomb and, and and literally bomb cities you know and 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 civilian you know neighborhoods and stuff like that so can't give it a month but but there's something weird about invoking the idea that look in 1989 19, in 1990 when Saddam took Kuwait George H.W. Bush, backed by Margaret Thatcher and eventually backed by most of the world, said, this will not stand, right? Biden didn't say that, and maybe he shouldn't. Because in the end, you know... He did say that. He did he's, not... He's, when? We got to go back this, to the transcript. But yeah, I, I, I fully recall him saying something very George H.W. Bush-esque about the aggression not standing. I'll go back to the transcript because I, okay, I heard I'm something sorry, but so what, similar. Okay. But what I, what I mean is that one of the things that he was conveying, which was good and I think is good, but, but, but was muddied by this weird rhetorical decision to say, you know, America stands up to bullies. I mean, Putin's not a bully. Like that's a, that's a ridiculous analogy. He's not trying to bully Ukraine. He's trying to kill Ukraine. Like, he's not a bully. He's not, like, just trying to, like, you know, make life hard. He was a bully to Ukraine since he became, you know, the leader of Russia. He is now literally trying to kill Ukraine. So uh, that's not bullying. That's something else. That's that's a, a homicidal intent. But what he wanted to lay out was don't think about going any further. I mean, that was the message to Putin is we're moving all these forces in place and we are going to fulfill our Article 5 responsibilities under, under the NATO treaty, which means any attack on any NATO member, and I guess in this case, you're really talking about Poland, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, right? These are the four places that could really... Romania you know, and Bulgaria. Romania and Bulgaria, right, sorry. Um, we, are, we are fortified. We are, go, everybody, we are moving troops in. We are moving armor. We are moving 
materiel in, don't think about going any further. We are not kidding around here. That is good. Like, I, I do want to say that it is important that that message be delivered unmistakably at the very beginning of this conflict, right? Um, however, it does have the effect of kind of seeding Ukraine a little bit rhetorically. It's like, we're going to watch them as they heroically stand up for freedom. Meanwhile, while they fight it out there, we're shoring up the line that we actually are treaty obligated to defend. And gra granted, we Ukraine is not part of the NATO military alliance. But we did promise to protect it from Russian depredation in 1994 when it surrendered its nuclear weaponry, which was clearly the dumbest was clearly a geopolitical, a terrible geopolitical mistake that the Ukrainians made. If they had nuclear weapons, Putin wouldn't be there today. And Putin having nuclear weapons means that we can't engage him directly, really, in that way. I don't know. I'm Abe. Uh, let's. Uh, what did you make of the? What did you make of the speech? I mean, first of all, why is he delivering these speeches at two thirty in the afternoon? Is it that he can't stay up after seven? Like. What happened to the presidential address? Why isn't he sitting in the Oval Office talking about war? Maybe I'm maybe I'm just being old-fashioned and stupid, and he wanted to talk so he would be in prime time in Europe, and I don't know, and I'm being unfair. Where I mean, is the presidential address? This, you know, he looked like an idiot the other day because he walked out and then he turned around and walked out again. Like, sit at the sit at the desk, stand at a podium without reporters there and deliver your speech. Like what the hell is going on? What happened to the formal powers of the presidency to make a formal address to the nation that has authority behind it? Go ahead. Well, we've been in a kind of permanent state of crisis for two years uh, where there are, there have been presidential updates, check-ins um, continuously, right? on covid um you know mostly on covid yeah but, but yeah. mostly mostly on covid but yeah. weighing in on other things yeah and so um i think there is now this sense it look there was a time pre-covid pre-trump where life went on and then something massive and scary would happen and then there would be the presidential address then the, then sort of regular life and emergency life blended uh and it's i, I think it's kind of hard for for people to make this distinction now and say, OK, this is this is really serious because everything is a crisis now. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's like the nature of stardom, the change in the way, you know, uh, being being a star, being a central figure uh, in, in American culture and American life often uh, featured absence. That is to say, the biggest movie stars, for example, didn't make a lot of movies. And they didn't make a lot of public appearances or give a lot of interviews or anything like that. So that when they emerged every 18 months with a movie or something, it was an event that people wanted to see them. If they showed up at the Oscars, it was an event. You wanted to see what they were wearing and what they were doing because they were otherwise mostly invisible. And now, of course, we live in this 24-7 culture and every star has an Instagram feed. And is, you know, is is out every day and be, is is not only not, uh, made notable by their by by scarcity but we're kind of uh, dive bombed by them and you know that was trump who just couldn't 
bear when when I wrote for Reagan and when Reagan was president, he appeared in public three or four times a week at most, maybe less. Now Biden actually doesn't appear that much in public, and we can all speculate as to the reasons why. But um, the grandeur of the office and the grand grandeur often involves absence. Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, you know, uh, informality breeds uh, a lack of um, a lack of kind of uh, Mount Rushmore-ish standing. And um, we don't even need to talk about the performative aspects of the speech because he sounds like a tired old man. Um, and you know, whatever force there is in the words is belied by the lack of energy in the presentation and we okay, can there's blame all kinds of things there's yeah, political advantages for him to treat this like a, a very serious and real crisis though yeah um i mean there i think the white house is understandably terrified of the political fallout that will occur many months down the road in the event that we engage in very real economic warfare with russia um and we should be terrified by that and the president should address that by pursuing something resembling an energy policy to offset the fallout that would result but he's talking he's been talking about the consequences and the pain that we should be feeling and you know asking for sacrifice on the part of the american public and he should absolutely be doing so from behind the resolute desk in prime time because that is the seriousness of this consequence and much like the obama people they're terrified of the oval office and i don't know why they have a weird hang-up about the oval office but this is the time to do it. And you will get, if history is any guide, uh, a bounce, an approval bounce, just by virtue of the crisis and him being the titular head of the government during a crisis. And, you know, also from uh, from Biden's perspective, there's another advantage uh, that would come with with addressing uh, the American people from the Oval Office in that traditional way, which is that he could stay on script. Uh, because he gets into trouble in the Q and A. Yeah, get give it a month. Give it a month. Not, yeah, that was don't a, want that, it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because we don't have the bounce uh, as yet, though we may see it. But we have, we have, we have the opposite of a bounce, and this is interesting because of the the weirdness of the uh, Republican commentary and the conservative commentariat. Gallup's out with a poll. Uh, Russia. Uh, as of uh, yesterday, has an 85% disapproval rating. Um, that's near Iraq and Iran numbers, uh, uh, you know, near Iraq numbers before the wars. Um, and we have this substantial body of conservative opinion uh, that is, uh, at, at the very least, neutral and maybe slightly favorably disposed toward Putin and Russia. They are misreading. They are misreading the signs. They are misreading the signals. They are misreading the data. And uh, and if this is a hinge moment in history, uh, uh, the Fox primetime lineup is on the wrong side of it. Uh, and um, that is not something that you should be on the wrong side of. Uh, as the fact that CNN and MSNBC were perceived to be on the wrong side in some sense after 9-11 was what gave Fox, was what pushed Fox into its primacy. Uh, 
you know, in, in the news business. I mean, it, 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 that was the moment, you know, it was like uh, Brit Hume was wearing the flag pin and nobody on the other networks was wearing the flag pin. That's all it took in some ways. So I, I, that is a very heartening development. I don't know what's going to go on with Biden. Generally speaking, um, if he, I mean, part of the thing here is if we're going to ask for Americans to sacrifice, right, if we're going to, if or you're going to say, look, this is going to happen anyway, uh, now we can move into the secondary topic that we should talk about. Um, you got to clear the decks for that. And that, that is, you know, if the CDC is in fact announcing today a significant change uh, in its uh, guidance on masking and various other things, significant, like seriously significant, not, not, it could well be that it isn't. We'll give you an example, because in New York State, for example, uh, the new chancellor of the New York City schools announced with great fanfare a, a liberalization of the masking policy that will now allow kids in New York City public schools not to wear masks outside. They can now not wear masks outside. That's a concession. Now, granted, like my my kid's private school now allows kids to also like not wear masks outside. And and my son was pretty happy about that. Like he thought, you know, at recess on the roof or whatever, uh, he was happy uh, because, you know, he, threw, he got thrown a little bit of a bone. But if you're going to tell people that we're now going to live through an advance in inflation and advance in, you know, the, a further reduction in the uh, in the value of their dollar uh, because of international uh, because of an international crisis and concomitant possible financial gyrations in the markets and all of that, you better make their lives easier elsewhere and 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 stop serving your neurotic lunatic idiot audience that is still in in you know is still wearing is still hungry to wear masks. Um, and of course, all the polling shows as it continues to show that where masking remains favorably disposed is among people who work at home and don't have kids. And they're really happy to have kids wear masks in schools because they don't have kids. So kids could wear masks forever. You know what? You could wear masks forever. You could sew their mouths up too, you know, but then they won't, they won't make noise when you're on the street and bothering you with their, with all of their nonsense and noise. And uh, you're being flippant there, but I think you've really actually landed on a very salient point that probably illustrates the psychological dimensions that are informing this outlook where people are hungry to control the behavior of children they wouldn't otherwise encounter. Um, in, in settings that they have no, you know, no contact with. Like what explains that save for a kind of general distaste for the inconvenience presented by children in public settings? Look, I mean, we have been talking for decades now about the rise of the never marrieds, the, the, the pheno phenomenon a really serious, which hasn't necessarily, that doesn't just mean the rise of the never marriage it means that people aren't having kids because of course people are not getting married and having kids and therefore having unstable families and all of that. But um, there is a significant population in the United States that will never have children. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a new phenomenon. And the idea that they will, that their political, personal, social 
uh, and uh, you know, uh, interactional uh, d- uh, interests are going to differ significantly from people who have kids is very serious. And there are going to be wars over this over the next 20 years that people don't really appreciate. There are going to be property tax wars. Why should a person who never has kids uh, live in you know, a place where the property taxes are $50,000 a year in order to make sure that the schools are good? Like, uh, maybe they stay there after after their kids. You know, there are people who pay that because they stay where they moved to their kid after their kids are grown, and then their kid and they sort of still that's where they live. But property taxes, uh, all of that. The, the this is one of the reasons why there has to be a parents' revolt and why the parents' revolt has started because there is a large body of uh, Americans who do not have kids, who do not think about the interests of kids and families now uh, that were so so ingrained in everything that happened politically in the United States. Uh, I I think some of them think about the interests of of kids, but they think of it in the abstract. So so, So they do think, oh, well, I think we should protect kids with masks not having the first-hand experience of the reality of kids in masks. I mean, I don't think it's purely to the with the idea in mind of sort of, you know, no, look, shutting, the, shutting up parents, the troublemakers. Yeah. No, but I mean, look, there are also parents who want their kids to remain in masks because they're, they don't read what we read and they don't spend two hours a day following this and they don't know that masks are ineffectual and they don't know that kids don't the kids get COVID at a rate you know one fiftieth of the rate that everybody else gets COVID and all that they they actually don't know it and you know it's a classic thing they're low information people and so uh what they know is that if you wear a mask it'll help your kid so and your kid will be more will be safer than not safe and they don't delve into the material and that's one of the reasons why the cdc's behavior and the behavior of public health authorities has been so egregious and monstrous because uh, they do know and they don't care or they or they have bigger fish to fry or they have another they have a they have a different set of presumptions like ed young the you know pulitzer prize winning atlantic writer who just got nominated for 82 american magazine awards who said at the outset of the pandemic that he was excited at the possibility of reorienting society with the pandemic toward goals that he thought the society would better uh, could better meet. You know, essentially like uh, creating a safety regime, leading to single payer healthcare in the United States, and 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 all of that. Like that was a very honest thing that he said, and that certainly a lot of public health authorities, uh, I'm sure, uh, believe. But that's that's where we are. So we'll watch and see what that's because I'm guessing the CDC guidance is not going to be sufficient unto the day to satisfy anybody. That is to say, it's not it's not going to be a liberalization enough for the people who think that the entire regime needs to end. Um, and um, and it, it'll be pretty small beer. Um, but will it yeah. will it justify your prediction that the State of the Union is maskless and Joe Biden gets up there behind the podium and says, we're we're getting rid of masks for you know you adults all of you present because that small beer half measure would yeah. be worse than to not do anything at all 
to tell the assembled members of the of the uh, elected representatives of the, of the federal government, you can take off your masks now. Yay! Everybody in the, in the chamber goes, yay! Meanwhile, children still have to mask. Hospital settings still have to mask. Public transportation still has to mask. I don't know. That's what I mean. I mean, look, I just I mean, uh, if that's I, the case, if they do, because yeah. I now because of the CDC guidance is coming out now ahead of the State of the Union on Tuesday, it suggests that your prediction is is within an right. ace of being played out. Yeah. And yet, if they allow that, they, it, would, it would just be a slap in the face. Uh, I want to talk to you about Wealthfront. Uh, Wealthfront uh, dot com. Uh, is a website that allows you to start investing in no time with its classic portfolio or make a portfolio of your own with things you care about, like socially responsible funds, technology, crypto trusts, or hundreds of other investments. Wealthfront was designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. Don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill? Wealthfront.com helps you to do that. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio or what rebalancing even is. Wealthfront.com does it for you automatically. Wealthfront.com is trusted with over $28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful. It has a 4.9 out of five stars in the Apple App Store. So to start building your wealth and to get your first 5,000 managed for free for life, go to wealthfront.com slash commentary. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T.com slash commentary. To start building your wealth, go to wealthfront.com slash commentary today uh we apparently have a new uh supreme court nominee uh, in katanji uh brown jackson um on the dc circuit court of appeals uh and i n- none of us is expert enough to really um to go into this and i i would only be relying on uh, on the punditry of others uh, to talk about to talk about this nomination except uh, to note that um uh, it seems to be the le- despite the historical significance of 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 the appointment of a, a black woman, seventy five percent because she's a black woman, right? Because that's why she was appointed, and therefore, uh, you know, essentially, it's like putting an asterisk by her name uh, at the beginning of her career, because uh, the idea was I'm only picking from this category of person uh, and not in not, not even invoking in, 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 in the abstract, the idea that you're looking for the best person in America. Um, But it seems to be the least consequential such nomination since uh, Stephen Breyers, whom she is, um, who's, uh, whose seat she will presumably take on the Supreme Court, like um, in terms of newsworthiness, uh, the news event effect of it and all of that. Like we, since since Bob Bork's nomination in 1987, almost every nomination has had some controversy in it, except for Breyers. Not so much Kagan's maybe, but, but, uh, but you know, uh, they tried to block Alito. They tried to block Roberts. They tried to block obviously <laughs> Kavanaugh and there were Gorsuch and Barrett and um, uh, and uh, well Biden's having announced beforehand that he's that he is going to pick a black woman saps the significance of it um, if he had just done it without sort of uh, uh, collecting all the glory for himself beforehand um, 
the nomination itself announced today would have been more significant because who knew who would have known what he was going to do? Uh, yeah, well, I know. I mean, or you could have assumed that he was going to do it. I mean, interestingly, as a political strategy, um, not only does this saps the significance and it makes it much less interesting, and obviously you're basically trading a liberal for a liberal on the court uh, that has already got a conservative majority, so you're not really changing the balance of anything. Um, but uh, you could smoke out the opposition better than they think they're going to smoke them out, by which I mean, um, if he picks her, uh, you could then get uh, conservatives and Republicans in unguarded moments saying things that you could really use against them seriously, that they're going to try to do now anyway, right? There's, uh, there's this idea that because her name is Katanji, like Republicans will mispronounce it and that'll show that they're racists. But um, Republicans do have a habit of, uh, you know, of, of people uh, when they are, uh, I mean, as we know from Ilya Shapiro, you know, um, you say something uh, that is um, uh, an elision of something. You're saying like, oh, yeah, well, he just picked her because she's a black woman. That that actually could be a very useful thing politically for Democrats with black women, let's say. Um, but Biden said, I picked her because she's a black woman. Uh, I was only going to pick someone because he's a black woman. It, it, it kind of makes it harder uh, to you to make that a political issue. No. Yes. No. Absolutely. Right. I, I think so. Um, and and also uh, saying it mean is meaningless anyway because because he said it. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to say I I oppose her because she's a black woman. No. I mean, you can then say I oppose her because she's a liberal or because she's the most liberal choice he could possibly have made um that's of course the i gather uh from 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 what i'm reading of people who who know uh, all the most serious nominees that she she is the she is the most leftward uh of the three uh, leading candidates but that doesn't mean that he chose her because she's the most leftward i mean it could mean that he chose her because she got three republican votes when she was uh when she was confirmed for the uh, for the dc circuit and so i think you know those... <laughs> i think democrats are going to be shocked and kind of annoyed by how low stakes this fight is and how little enthusiasm there's going to be among republicans for grandstanding and making a big show of opposing her i mean there will be plenty who do just to raise their own personal profiles but ranking member on the judiciary committee lindsey graham has already said this is pretty much over um, and I don't suspect that we're going to see a lot of the kind of um, resistance that Democrats want to see from Republicans in order to make their resistance a campaign issue. I think they're going to be there's going to be a lot of rope dope and it's going to be deflating because they want to have some sort of a big cultural fight over this, obviously. And it's just not going to be forthcoming. Look, there's going to be a big cultural fight over the Supreme Court uh, in the next six months. It's just not going to be over this nominee. I mean, it's going to be over the abortion decision. There is going to be an abortion decision in June or July, and there will be a huge cultural fight over it. But the the the, the main distinction here is going to be that it won't really have mattered who the liberal justice was, because the liberal justice presumably would have voted one way, and the conservative justices may vote another. And so nothing, the composition of the court and what the court would do or how it would find is really not at issue here. That's 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 one of the reasons why this is a why the stakes are so low. 
there's <clears throat> there's always the chance, and I don't think we should underestimate the, the possibility of this, that some low IQ new breed of Republican comes forward with some semi-racist conspiracy theory about her that uh, that the left and liberals can then use to paint the entire right on the issue. I mean, I, I'm What's sure about that, that will happen. Yeah, no, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure that week. will happen. I'm sure that will happen. But um, it can't. I mean, this is part of the problem with this nomination now, given the moment that we're in, which is that, um, you know, uh, Biden needs uh, uh, Biden needs to be displaying seriousness of purpose um, and uh, and all of that. And like uh, stupid culture wars uh, right now are not going to help him very much. Really, like, you know, he's got to be seen to be a, a larger figure than somebody who gets involved in idiot in idiot culture wars, which is not to say that uh, <clears throat> findings in Supreme Court cases that have the standing of law, whatever those are over the next six months, and mo mostly this abortion case will, that's not just stupid culture war, like that is actually the, you know, the future of the country. Uh, and that is culture war of a very serious kind and he will want to engage in it part to for fundraising purposes and to rally whomever he thinks will be best best rallied by that it may be his only card to play if if inflation spirals like what what is he going to have to unite his uh you know band of band of uh, brothers and sisters uh except the idea that we need to stand against this this uh uh, these uh, cultural depredators who are going to deny us of our, you know, fundamental rights to abortion and stuff like that. I mean, it's going to be very important for him also in money terms. Um, so again, uh, uh, if you want to see us do what we're doing here live with Christine and maybe a special guest or two, go to commentary.org slash live podcast to sign up for the April 6th live event in Palm Beach, Florida, me, Abe, Noah, Christine, special guests, probably you'll get a soda. I don't know. Maybe there might be some crudite. We haven't really figured that out yet. Got to pay for it because we don't want lunatics just walking in off the street. Um, and uh, also, you know, when you pay for it, you're helping commentary. So live event, podcast live live to tape i should say because we're not gonna we're not gonna do it live so that people can we're gonna tape it and then we'll, then it'll go out over our feed and so your laughter your applause uh your shouted comments and all of that will be part of the entire experience commentary.org slash live podcast go sign up we'll be back on monday with christine uh, for abe and noah i'm john Pothoritz. keep the candle burning <laughs>